You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about two of my favorite topics, farmland and tax advantages. Today, I'm speaking with Josh Guggenheim, VP of Acquisitions at Goldleaf Farming. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, and, and uh, I'm not joking. Those really are two of my favorite topics. I think farmland <laughs> is an awesome asset class within alternative investments. I think tax advantage investing, tax efficient investing, it's always top of mind for our audience of family offices and high net worth investors. But before we dive in some of this tax stuff, um, can you give us a brief introduction to Goldleaf Farming? Yeah, sure. Um, so Goldleaf, I think the best way to look at us is really a hybrid investment company and farming company. We do uh, investing in permanent uh, farmland, permanent agriculture, but we also operate it ourselves, which differentiates us a bit from other, you know, more passive farmland investors. We've got currently about 27 different farms under management. It's something like 250 million of equity and maybe 350 million of total farm value. It's 27 farms, primarily in California, and we've got a few in Arizona. And I think we have two kind of core strategies. One is a cash flow based strategy where we're buying uh, existing farmland, you know, an existing farm, improving it and just delivering cash flow. Our other strategy is more of a development strategy where we're buying their land, you know, without a farm, putting an orchard on it and then exiting. Um, so yeah, I've been I've been with the firm for about five years and uh you know, love love to see your guys' progress, by the way, too, and looking forward to uh to sharing more. So I want to ask a little bit more the fact that you guys are an operator, not just you know, the asset manager or sponsor. That's very fascinating and attractive to me. I, I would say, you know, just the the idea of vertical integration always holds appeal. As just speaking as an LP, whether it's in like the multifamily world or private equity or farmland, is that how how common is that? in the world of asset management, particularly in farmland? It's not very common, I'd say. The primary, if you think about the other ways that investors can get exposure to farmland, it's often that the exposure is to other, other models. So for example, you could invest in a farmland REIT, but farmland REITs, what they do is they own the asset, they own the farm, and then lease it out to a third-party farmer. We don't necessarily want to do that model ourselves because we think that if we can farm the farms ourselves, we have an operational advantage. It also helps, frankly, on a diligence advantage because the guys we have looking at new farms to acquire are actually farmers themselves, not folks you know sitting in on Wall Street or something. Mm -hmm. So it's to answer your question, it's a rare model, but we think uh, although it would probably be easier to frankly find a third party just to lease it back, this is something where it's worth the hard work and we can drive better returns. Does it change, you know, the, the way that you manage the asset when you know that you're an owner operator, you know, owning it for the long term? Like I, I know very little about farming, so uh, don't hold me to account here, but I'm thinking even in terms of like managing soil and irrigation and water and 
are any of those decisions affected by the idea that you actually operate the farm, you plan on owning it for the long term? Yeah, that's an, an interesting question. I think the first thing is we've really got to focus on the quality of the farm. If you think about a REIT model, what they really want to focus on is really the quality of the tenant balance sheet. Mm. And they don't really care if the farm has high yield or low yield or good spoils or not. They just want that guaranteed 6 or 7% return. And whether that return is generated by farm operating income or by somewhere else on the tenant's balance sheet, it's fine. When we're buying a farm, it's really important that we you know, have good operations, that the yield potential is really high because we can't really share that risk with a third party. We're taking that risk on. So we really need to buy the best, best in case, you know, best kind of high, we, we would say is basically top quartile farms in California. Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing is, uh, you know, really operational value add. We do a lot in kind of the organic conversion space, for example. And what that means is we'll buy an existing farm. We'll take three years to convert it to organic. And once it's converted to organic, we can basically sell the commodity price for, for a price that's twice as high. Organic almonds, for example, trade at, at twice the price of conventional. So long story short, when we're looking at a farm, it's important to us to find those opportunities where there is operational value add uh, and opportunities to kind of execute and use the expertise that we have. Other farmland investors, you know, for them, it's really not that important to have that. They just want that guaranteed rent, which is which is fine. They've done quite well as well. But our model might be a little bit more um, kind of farm quality and value add specific. Understood. Okay. And I know we want to talk about taxes, but one more quick question about gold leaf and your company culture. Do you all wear like khakis and lopers to the office or do you get to wear jeans and muck boots? Uh, as you can tell from my, you know, poor dress today, it's a pretty low key, uh, low key dress code here, but we have an interesting court. Like we have, you know, quarterly retreats with the team and mm -hmm. about 60% of the team is you know, wearing uh, cowboy boots and um, various other things, a lot of American flags, and 40% of the team comes in a little bit more of a of a corporate attire. Uh, we've got about 60% of the team in the Central Valley, and the rest are kind of in, in other areas. And you can always tell from, from the dress code who's the farmer in the Central Valley versus the, you know, <laughs> the corporate farmer such as myself. So it's a good question. Who's who's the spreadsheet jockey, right? That 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 kind of a farmer. Um, exactly, exactly. They say we have a colleague Sawyer who says, I guess his dad's a farmer, and told him that like farming is a really easy and simple uh, exercise. You know, when your you know plow is a spreadsheet, mm -hmm. but a little bit harder in the actual operations day to day. So, Josh, you're you're really taking me back here. I moved out to the country <laughs> about uh, eight years ago from Chicago. Mm. And my first uh, buddy here in Holland, Michigan, where I live now, called me City Boy, right? Because I had like okay. <laughs> just just from the way I dressed. Now you know. Now I have the muck boots and all that, so I've adjusted. But um, it really, life really is better in the country. You know, I'm 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 jealous of you guys's work situation where you get to visit all these farms. You know, that sounds like fun. Um, but aside from lifestyle, we want to talk about tax advantages, right? Because it's not just fun to visit farms. We want to invest in assets that maximize our risk-adjusted returns. And when you're a high net worth investor, when you're a family office, taxes are a huge part of the picture. They, they're either the single biggest drag on investment returns, 
or if you can find ways to deploy capital into tax-advantaged investments, they can be a huge driver of investment returns on a triple net basis for families, for high net worth investors. So you mentioned to me you know, before we recorded that gold leaf there, you really have four different elements you use to optimize the, the tax advantage returns for investors. Why don't we start with that first thing that you're focused on from the tax picture? Yeah, perfect. And you know, Andy, I think we see the world similarly. We have a yield-based strategy uh, investors now, you know, with higher rates have a lot of other ways to access yield. But to us, we think our product's a bit better because it's tax advantage yield versus, you know, right. say like private debt or something else, which the yield might be nice. But when you're looking after tax, it's it's a little bit less attractive. So, um, you know, to that point, there are a few things that that help us. The big one, like we mentioned, is bonus depreciation. So, as part of the, you know, I guess TCGA as part of the Trump tax plan a few years back, uh, improvements that were that basically have less than a 20-year life were able to be bonus depreciated. So I'm so, sure the listeners know this in, in other asset classes. So anything that, let's just say, had a 15-year life could fully be bonus depreciated uh, in the year of acquisition. Right. In farmland... If you think about us buying a farm, about half of the value is the land. So if it's you know thirty thousand bucks an acre, about fifteen thousand bucks is the land, and the rest is all you know farmland improvements. So that's the trees, that's the irrigation, that's the wells, that's some equipment, etc. That's different, let's say, than you know crop, general you know soybeans or something, because in that case there's only equipment. There's not much of like a you know permanent asset value in the irrigation or the crop, I guess a little in the irrigation, but not in the trees. For us, there's a substantial amount of value kind of in the trees. We're buying, by the way, all almonds, pistachios. We have some wine grapes and some some date farms as well. But anyway, there's a huge amount of value that is you know, real property that has less than a 20 year um, lifespan. So, so, so I'm sorry, Josh, just, yep. just, just to interrupt. So this is different, you know, again, I'm, I don't come from a farming background, uh, especially in terms of asset management, but so normally if, if I buy a, a field and it's full of soybeans, you know, you harvest those year by year, but if it's full of trees, if it's an orchard or with almond trees or, or whatever, those trees are considered improvements. So they'd normally that, be yep. on a 20 year depreciation schedule. But because of the accelerator or the bonus depreciation, we can depreciate them all in year one. That's ab absolutely right. Wow. So when you're looking at our farms, it's not like you're buying just a piece of land. You're really buying land and all these improvements. And all these improvements can be bonus depreciated now in year one. Well, I guess now it's 80% because of the step down, but right. all of them basically qualify for, for bonus depreciation. This is different than, let's say, multifamily. I love multifamily, by the way. I'm personally a multifamily investor, but the tax benefits here with depreciation are a bit better. The reason being is that multifamily, you know, you can do a cost segregation in a lot of the assets and more, or some of the improvements, some of the real property, um, or I guess rather some of the personal property, like flooring or appliances and things like that in multifamily can be bonus depreciated. But the building foundation and other real property cannot. In farmland, all of the improvements can be bonus depreciated uh, up front. So there's a bit of a a bit of a difference there. 
Yeah, that's and that's a huge difference. I mean, it, you know, that's maybe not quite like oil and gas, but that's that's you know getting close to just that's an extreme advantage when you can basically uh, bonus depreciate, you know, the whole thing that not not the land itself, but all of the improvements to to your point, eighty percent because of the step down. Um, but but that's yeah, for, huge. for sure. And you know, the way we would look at it, a typical deal for us is you know maybe a ten million dollar farm. Let's say five million dollars of that is the land value, and five million are the improvements. When we buy the farm, we generally also use like fifty percent debt, fifty percent equity. So for a ten million dollar farm, we're writing a five million dollar uh, equity check. And like I mentioned, that ten million dollar farm has five million dollars of uh, depreciation from you know half half of the value is improvements that can be depreciated. So what you end up getting is you know more or less if you're writing a five million dollar equity check you're getting you know five million dollars of depreciable assets in 80 percent of which can be depreciated in year one so for every dollar you invest you're getting 80 cents of depreciation literally right off the bat um which really you know obviously helps returns either on this deal or helps you shield uh you know passive income from other deals you might be invested in and are your deals typically I, well, I guess when you're acquiring, are they typically cash flowing right away? Like, is the is the goal to cash flow in year one or two, or is it more like it's a two or three year plan to stabilize the asset, like you might have with like a value add multifamily? You know, like it's a mix. I think uh, probably half of our deals are cash flowing day one, and then half are uh, there's a bit of a value add, like an mm -hmm. organic transition or um, some sort of other way to you know increase the yield or improve the water on the property. So it's a mix. But all of our, how this works is you can only bonus depreciate the improvements um, once there's a marketable crop. And generally, we uh, are only buying farms that already have a marketable crop. There might be some value add to improve the you know cash flow performance, but um, you know everything that we buy can be you know depreciated year one and will cash flow maybe that year, maybe in a year or two, but in the in the near term i'd say got it okay well honestly i could talk about bonus depreciation all day i'm I'm weird like that but i want to move on to the second tax element that you all focus on yeah thanks so the other uh you know tax element we focus on is opportunity zones that's a little bit different as i'm sure the listeners know um opportunity zones and to qualify for them work a bit better for developments rather than existing farms so the bonus depreciation I mentioned is more around our strategy of buying existing farms and not developments. But when we do developments, we can often qualify them for opportunity zone treatment. If you think about, you know, I don't want to, I know you guys have a lot of other um, topics on opportunity zones, but, you know, from a high level opportunity zones, what they are, are, I guess, is a program to incentivize investment in underinvested uh, census tracts or areas in the country. So that can be, you know, poorer, let's say areas of cities, um, but a lot of them are actually rural areas. And what we found is that opportunity zones in California often correlate with like some of the best soils and some of the best water rights. They are, you know, economically underdeveloped mm -hmm. uh, and were selected to be in this program. But the exciting thing about farmland and opportunity zones is that some of the best farmland in California is within an opportunity zone. That's a bit different than 
maybe let's say multifamily or office or hotels where, you know, if you're going to do a development in an opportunity zone, you may be sacrificing a little asset quality for that tax treatment, which is fine. I love the program, by the way. I think it's a great program to bring bring dollars in areas that wouldn't be uh, invested. But sometimes, you know, you're you could invest theoretically in an opportunity zone deal, but invest in a you know inferior asset in farmland. Like I said, some of the best water rights, best soils are in the opportunity zones. So you know, it's an opportunity to you know have a good a great tax play without sacrifice, sacrificing asset quality. Yeah. And, and, you know, opportunity zones are a little bit all or nothing, right? Like either the asset is in an opportunity zone or it's not, but if it's structured as an opportunity zone deal, the tax advantages of the opportunity zones program are tremendous. So what portion of uh, your acquisitions or your deals are in opportunity zones versus uh, are, are not in opportunity zones? So in total, we have about 27 farms that we've uh, acquired or managed currently. Uh, let's say 20, I guess 19 of those are existing deals, which do not qualify for opportunity zones. As you guys probably know, to qualify for an opportunity zone, you not only have to be within an opportunity zone, but you also have to hit uh, you know, a substantial improvement or original use test. So those deals are not included in opportunity zones. Of the eight or nine remaining deals that we have that are developments, uh, five of which are in an opportunity zone and three are not. So, you know, kind of interesting, you'd say, you know, 62 or whatever percent of our developments are actually within opportunity zones and take full, full um, you know, use of the program. So there's a, there's a high amount and there's good water districts in California, you know, Fresno ID, James ID. Uh, Delano, Air, Early Mart, various others that are great areas, which have most of their acreage in uh, in an OZ. So, it's it's a tremendous program. Uh, and, and as a reminder to our listeners, you know you do have to have a capital gain to deploy capital into an opportunity zone fund. So it's not pertinent to everyone. You know some of these tax benefits are are pertinent to everyone or universal, like bonus depreciation. Um, opportunity zones, a little bit more of a, you know, it's something you have to plan for. I mean, I can speak as an LP when I want to make an opportunity zone investment, either I'm sitting on a capital gain already, or I have to figure one out, right? Like this, sometimes yep. I'll find an opportunity zone fund and I'll, I'll say to myself, I really want to invest in this. I need to, you know, go look at my index funds, go look at my mutual funds, <laughs> you know, find a way to engineer a capital gain to be able to make that investment because it really is, you know, the ability to grow tax-free over 10 years come out the back end without owing any capital gains tax is 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 huge. Do you anticipate that these assets will, you know, do you see substantial price appreciation? Is is that what, you know, obviously you can't guarantee the future, right? And, you know, cap rates in 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But when you come in and improve an asset, for instance, when you shift it to organic or something like that, are you planning significant price appreciation? We don't underwrite to a huge amount of uh, price appreciation, but there is some there. The way you know our market works is if you can deliver something turnkey, there's a bigger audience for it. So, I for see. example, there's a lot of pension funds or REITs out there that basically want to buy existing farms that are already cash flowing that they can clip a coupon off of. They'll buy it, then they'll lease it to someone else, like I mentioned. But the person they're leasing it to can afford to make the payment day one. So what we think about it is, you know, if we can buy this land, develop it, 
it, you know, we'll have to hold it for 10 years for this OZ benefit to be fully realized. But then if you have something that's totally cash flowing um, and profitable, there's a big, um, big audience out there for it. So, um, yeah, there's definitely some you know, people pay up for for turnkey uh, assets in the space. And, you know, farming, tri it's tricky to operate a farm. You can't just you know look online and it's hard to find people to do it and it's tricky to develop it, too. So if you can deliver something with lower operational risk, you can generally you know, capture a nice price premium in this market. Understood. Okay. So we've covered the depreciation. We've covered opportunity zones. What's the next tax benefit that you're focused on? Yeah. So two kind of minor, uh, maybe interesting things for the audience. The first one is the Williamson Act. Now the Williamson Act uh, is actually, it's been around for a while. It's been around, I think, since the sixties in California. And this is before Prop, Prop 13 in California. But what was basically happening was farmland near cities was appreciating rapidly in, in value. And as a result of that, farmers had to pay really high property taxes because their property started to be valued not as a farm, but as like, you know, the next single family housing development in Fresno or something. So the state came in and passed a law and said, if farmers can commit to not to basically keeping their farm a farm for 10 or more years, and not changing the zoning, they can get lower property tax. So it's generally a 35% reduction in property tax in California, which is already relatively low. It's the only tax in California that, that is low. Hmm. But in short, our, our properties um, generally pay something like 60 or 70 bips of property tax rather than the 110 bips that usually you know, real estate in California pays. So you get a you know a nice uh, you know reduction in in property tax, which is important. Totally, totally. And then I understand there's one other tax program. Yeah, the one involved. other one is called IC Disc, and essentially what IC Disc does is it's an export tax incentive available for you know farming or manufacturing or distribution companies, and it basically allows companies that export their products to pay lower taxes on products exported rather than ones for domestic consumption. in uh, the tax rate paid is similar to the qualified dividend income tax. So like 20% plus maybe 3.8. Uh, and rather than, you know, a uh, just normal income tax. Right. And this is important for us because we produce a lot of almonds, for example, like 70, 60, 70% of California almonds are actually exported. So 60 to 70% of our farm income can actually be taxed at this qualified dividend rate uh, and not at, you know, just usual ordinary income tax rates, which really, you know, can add up. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting as you've gone through all four of these different tax programs, I call it stacking tax incentives, right? Is where you have one one element of your tax strategy is favorable or maybe another, like you have an opportunity zone fund, but then within that, you know, bonus depreciation or, or whatnot. Yep. So the idea that you're combining all of these tax strategies and, you know, deploying them where appropriate to me as an LP, that's very, very attractive. And I know, you know, a lot of family offices, high net worth investors, they're paying higher tax rates. So these types of uh, favorable tax treatment are of 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 more value really to, to that audience to those types of LPs. One other tax program I wanted to ask about, uh, whether with Goldleaf or just in farming in, in general, 
are a lot of farmland investors and owners utilizing the 1031 exchange? Is that is that common when when yeah, folks definitely. are buying? Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say people use 1031s a lot, which are important. And it's actually like a, a way where we can actually buy a lot of good quality farmland because folks who are farmers who are, you know, the median farmer in the U.S. is something like 67 years old. And it's hard work to farm. Uh, so you've got a lot of farmers who are reaching the retirement age now. And what they want to do is take advantage of a 1031 and basically 1031 out of farmland into like a triple, you know, like a triple net type deal where they can just get a right. nice 5%. So they are taking advantage of it. And kind of this 1031 program creates a lot of opportunities for us to buy from families that for generational reasons have to get out of farmland. And, you know, frankly, it allows us to buy at a, at a decent price because they need, you know, diversification yesterday. So. Absolutely. Yeah. The triple nets are, you know, as, as you retire, the triple net leases are very popular, yep. those type of properties, Delaware statutory trust. I, I have to give a plug for that. We have a new podcast <laughs> all about DSTs. So That's another popular, but, but you're right. I mean, because you have this entire generation of baby boomers who are now retiring and, uh, you know, I, Gen X and millennials, I guess we need to get our act together. We're not farming enough, right? Because there's, <laughs> you know, for the, generationally within a lot of families that, that they don't have that, uh, you know, generational succession plan in place. So. Yeah. And, you know, for us, we use it too, because if we're selling a farm, the downside of bonus depreciation is if you sell a farm, you've got a lot of recapture, mm -hmm. but we could basically sell a farm that we've already depreciated a lot out of and then roll via 1031 into something new and not have to worry about that, that recapture. So I guess we use it too. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. Well, um, I want to turn now beyond just the tax advantages of farmland with tax advantage or tax efficient investing. I always say I love the tax advantages, but you cannot let the tail wag the dog, right? It's like yep. the asset needs to have uh, a good investment thesis in the first place. And then, you know, the, the tax advantages are kind of the icing on top. So I know that Goldleaf, you all have your own thesis your own strategy, which is that there are specific subsectors, um, you know, specialty farmland, I guess we can call it that, that you're especially bullish on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. No, and I completely agree. I don't know who said it, but there was something like around fear the loss man, not the tax man. And I think that that sticks with us, <laughs> sticks with us too. But in regards to our strategy, uh, that's right. So we're focused on specialty permanent crops. That is different uh, than, you know, let's just say other kind of more commodity row crops that can grow anywhere. We want to buy crops that are essentially supply constrained, so they can't grow everywhere, but crops that have big demand tailwinds. And we think, you know, the, it's similar to real estate. If you can buy something that, you know, people want, but where supply can't really expand or expand easily, that's a good place to park your, park your money. So uh, when we're thinking about crops, the first thing is, you know, what crops grow where we are that don't grow in other places? Almonds and pistachios are big, you know, come to the top of that list. Something like 80% of the world's almonds grow in California. Wow. About 45, 50% of the world's pistachios grow in California. They can't grow well in other places because they require really specific climate, specific soils, uh, and good water infrastructure. 
so so california is like the the bordeaux region of pistachios yeah i wish it were the bordeaux for you know for bordeaux wine but it's basically the bordeaux for almonds and pistachios that's right so that's you know i think number one is buy you know pay attention to which crop you're buying make sure it's supply constrained okay and then the other thing and i think we get a lot of that from frankly like real estate investing the other uh key part that's part of our strategy is really more of a commodity play which we've learned from energy investors and that is it's really important to buy in places with low cost of production. So almonds and pistachios also have the lowest cost of production in the world in California. Um, pistachios, for example, might cost something like, let's say a dollar or dollar fifteen per pound to produce in California. It's probably like a dollar sixty or dollar eighty per pound in Iran or Turkey. So that's really important because if you're buying crops with low cost of production, there is some commodity price volatility. Prices move around, but if you're at a low a low price and low area of production, um, you're going to be able to withstand any movements in price. When price is low, you make a little bit of money, but when price is high, you make a ton. One way to look at it is like the oil business. You know, like Saudi Arabian oil is I don't know what it is twelve dollars a barrel or twenty dollars a barrel. They're always going to make money. Uh, Russian or uh, you know. Norwegian or British oil production is much higher. So like for oil prices really low, they might be not profitable. When oil prices is high, they're fine. But if we take that kind of comparison, um, we only want to basically invest in crops where we have the cost of production uh, advantage. I see. So there's, there's essentially less uh, risk than, you know, because the, the, really with any commodity, you know, in, in my mind at least, you know, I'm thinking it's always a wild ride in <laughs> commodity yep, prices, no, right? yep. but it's, it's relative, I guess, is what you're saying, you know, where if you have that most efficient cost to produce the commodity, there, there is less risk to you, just like to your point, Saudi Arabia in the case of oil. Yep, absolutely. So that, that's the, the right way to look at it. There are two, I would say, you know, major risks in, in agriculture. One is commodity price, and you can mitigate that by buying at a low cost of production or operating at a low cost of production. The other is yield. So you can have a, a year with bad crop yield. Mm. Fortunately, yield is mitigated in the U.S. through crop insurance. So we can buy insurance that allows us to have up to 80 or 85 percent of our yield covered. It's federally subsidized through the U.S. government who wants to support farmers in order to keep, you know, food security, uh, you know, within the country. Mm -hmm. So long story short, we feel like our, our risk is relatively low because we buy low, you know, at good cost of production, there's less commodity price risk. And then our yield is covered through our uh, fortunate U.S. government uh, crop insurance programs. Yeah, that is very fortunate. You know, I'm guessing a lot of uh, value-add multifamily sponsors are probably wishing they had some sort of u.s government backed insurance right yeah, now yeah. you know so no definitely i mean or a retail or office you know if someone moves out there's you know still great investments but there's no government backing to have at least 80 percent of your revenue or are defined um for us it's very helpful and you know to uh if you think about the cost of insurance it's usually around 100 or 200 dollars per acre and our whole operating budget is around $3,000 per acre to farm. So you have something like 3 to 6% of your operating budget 
goes to making sure that you're never going to have lower than 80% of your revenue. It's a pretty effective and cheap insurance policy when you think about it. Yeah, totally. Um, Josh, we're almost out of time, but you know, I was reviewing your all website, your company story, and I want to read this quote from the website um, because I it really resonated with me. We don't buy farms unless we'd be happy to own them forever. We're not flippers, and we hope to farm each property we buy for many decades. Um, how does this philosophy inform your acquisition process, or how does it inform your operations or or the way that you manage your assets? Because in my experience, you know, the, the, I, I've seen you present at our events before, and I think your philosophy really resonates with a lot of LPs. Um, but but how does it really? How does it? I guess affect you know, the, the acquisitions, the operations, the management? Yeah, good question. A few things. I think, you know, operationally and management-wise, we're operating all the assets, like I mentioned. So for us, we don't want to go buy a farm or buy two farms, build a whole team around there, recruit a bunch of folks, have them move there, and then sell the farm two years later. Mm -hmm. It just, you know, once you put in all the work around really getting to know a farm, operating it well, having a team there, you've really got to hold it for multiple years to get the, you know, to maximize the benefit out of it. Number two is, you know, culturally, uh, farmers are not are not flippers, so to say. And if you build yourself a rep reputation of buying a farm for 10,000 acre and then selling for 11,000, you know, in the private equity or the real estate world, that might be okay or seen as a good thing. In farming, it's really not. So uh, we have a, you know, obviously like a reputation. Farming is in acquiring these deals is a totally a, a reputation dependent um, project. So we'd rather not, you know, ex, you know, exit and get a, a tiny uh, return or relatively low return and put our reputation at risk. And we think, you know, that might hurt in maybe in the short term, but in the you know long and medium term, it's it's definitely the right the right thing to do. Josh, that sounds like the plot of a of a movie, you know, uh, country country folk who are you know multimillionaires owning these wonderful assets, distrusting the city slickers, while you know waltzing in with their their Italian suits or whatnot. You'd be yeah, <laughs> you'd be surprised some of uh yeah some of the uh, competition we'd have out there, and that's a a big thing. And you know, a lot of these folks. A lot of the farmers, they do have, you know, the typical deal we do is like 10 or $20 million deal. So big, pretty large deals. And a lot of the farmers have also, you know, farmed them for a long time. We actually have one one deal that we recently did that uh, the family bought it, I guess, in like the 1940s. And they only sold it just last year because um, the guy running it was like 79 years old. Anyhow, they have, you know, a lot of emotions tied up with these farms, as anyone yeah. would. And they don't want to sell to someone who, you know, is going to buy it, screw over the existing team and just do that for a quick profit. And uh, fortunately, like we're relatively young guys, we don't need immediate liquidity. Um, so it kind of works with our with our strategy and where we are in life, too. That's wonderful. And and Josh, I really appreciate, you know, giving us a glimpse into the world of farmland. I mean, I honestly do think it's a, an exciting world. There's so many tax advantages that I think our audience should be interested in. And that being said, where can our audience of high net worth investors, advisors, and family offices go to learn more about Goldleaf Farming? 
Yeah, thanks very much. So it's goldleaf.ag, so goldleaf.ag. Uh, you can find us online uh, or, you know, reach out directly to me. It's Josh, Josh Guggenheim at uh, goldleaf at, or Josh at goldleaf.ag. If you want to do a, a LinkedIn stock too, that works. I'm connected with Andy and the rest of the guys, but yeah, we'd really appreciate if you have any other questions. We're we're happy to take uh, take some time and uh, go from there. And I'll be sure to include all of those links in our show notes page for this episode, which as always are available at wealthchannel.com. Josh, thanks again for joining the show today. Perfect. Thanks very much, Andy. And if you ever want to get out of the city and do some work on, on the farm, we can make, make that happen too. Oh, it'd do me some good, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.